You know, I've been thinking this week a lot about grace, and it's my daughter's fault. Uh, she's a freshman at Belmont University, and last semester she had to take a Bible class. It's required of all freshmen, and the teacher sent this big list of books that she had to purchase for Bible class, and I was commenting on them when I saw them all come in the house. I'm like, man, those are really good books. Like, when you get done with your Bible class, I want those books, because I want to read a bunch of those books. I haven't read them. And so over the course of the semester, she had to take one of those books and do a book report on it. And so she called me and was like, which one should I read? Which one would you recommend? And the one I told her to read was Brennan Manning's book, uh, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Now, I haven't read the book, but I'm familiar with Brennan Manning and his work, and I was familiar with the book. And I said, I think you'll like that one the best. And so she read that book. She did a book report on it. She called me and said, Dad, would you mind editing the book report. And so I edited the book report. And as I was doing that, as I was reading her book report, I, I just, I wanted to read the book because she did such a great job explaining what Manning talks about in that book. And, and it's all about grace and it's all about love. And it's all about, Manning talks about how grace is scandalous and how God's grace is gratuitous. That it's like, it's just... It, and I read the book. I just finished it, matter of fact. So I, I read the book, and it's when you really try to grasp God's grace, it's something we can't really get our minds around because we've never experienced that type of grace from any other person in life, including our parents or our kids. or our, We've never experienced that kind of grace. And he talks about this concept of how grace is unmerited favor, and it means that it's unmerited. We can't do anything to earn it, we can't do anything to deserve it. Like there's nothing we've done to deserve it. There's nothing we've done to earn it. It's, it's a completely free gift. And we really don't know what to do with that. Like we don't know what to do with free gifts. If you think about Christmas season, you know, if somebody gives you a gift during Christmas and you didn't have a gift for them, what do we do? We panic, right? I mean, if somebody, one of our friends drops a gift off the house, like, Oh my goodness, we didn't get a gift for them because we feel like if somebody gives us something, we owe them something in return. Like if somebody gives us a gift, then we owe it to them to get them a gift. Or with our families, like if our brother got us a more expensive gift than we got him, then we panic just a little bit. It's like, oh my goodness, you know, he spent hundreds of dollars on me and I only spent 25 on him. Oh my goodness, you know, because we don't know how to receive grace like that. Like we don't, we just don't even know how to do that. We don't know how to receive it because we didn't earn it. And we feel like we need to do something to earn it. Um, there was a guy at one of the convenience stores that I stop at every now and then. And um, he would, he would never let me pay for my drink. And so like every time I went in there, he's like, no, 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 you, no, 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 you take it. You take it. It's on me. It's on me. I stopped going in there. I stopped going in there because I didn't know what to do with a free gift like that. I felt like I owed him something. I felt guilty for accepting his grace. And a lot of us feel that way with God. And that's why we feel like we have to kind of work our way to heaven or we have to earn his love in some way or earn his obedience in some way. And here's the deal. If we have to earn it, it's not grace. If we deserve it, it's not grace. It, you know, it's, it, it's a paycheck at that point. It's not a gift. It's a paycheck. And you understand the difference between a, a gift and a paycheck. I earn my paycheck. But a gift is just given to me. I don't deserve it. I don't earn it. I just, it's just given to me. It's the free gift. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 3. Actually, Paul talks about it a whole lot. But 
this passage in Romans chapter 3, and you're familiar with this, one of his iconic passages, chapter 3, verse 23, Paul says, For all have sinned, and all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet now, God in His gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus, who has freed us by taking away our sins. For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. Now listen to this next line, because this is where we really miss the boat a lot. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed His blood, sacrificing His life for us, period. That we are made right with God when we believe what Jesus had done for us. Not when we you know, live the perfect life, not when we come to church every Sunday, not when we make sure we follow all the rules, not when we cross all the T's and dot all the I's. We are made right with God when we believe in Jesus. He continues, So God was being entirely fair and just when He did not punish those who had sinned in the former times. And He is entirely fair and just in this present time when he declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in Jesus. That's grace. God declares us right in his sight when we believe in Jesus. It's not what we have done, it's what Jesus did. It's not what we have earned, it's what Jesus earned for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, I want to share a, a story with you that kind of drives this point home. It's, it's a parable that uh, comes from Max Licato, and I don't think you've heard it before. Well, I'll take that back. 10 or 15 of you have heard this before <laughs> because I shared this parable for the first time with this church in June of 2006. And the only reason I know that is because it was the very first sermon I preached in this building. We moved in in June of 2006. And the sermon that I preached that, that Sunday was called Grace, and I shared the parable of the river. And I want to read that parable to you. And a parable is intended to make us think. So a parable is a story that's intended to make us think. And this is a parable about grace. And I think it'll be very obvious as I read it who the father is and who the oldest son is. The question to ask yourself as I read the parable is, which of the brothers are you? Which of the siblings are you? So here's the story. Once there were five sons who lived in a mountain castle with their father. The eldest was an obedient son, but his four younger brothers were rebellious. And their father had warned them of the river, but they had not listened. He begged them to stay clear of the bank, lest they be swept downstream. But the river's, river's lure was too strong. Each day, the four rebellious brothers ventured closer and closer until one son dared to reach in and fill the waters. Hold my hand so I won't fall in. He said to his brothers, and his brothers did. But as soon as he touched the water, the current yanked him and the other three down the rapids and rolled them down the river. Over the rocks they bounced, through the channels they roared, on the swells they rolled. Their cries for help were lost in the rage of the river. And though they fought to gain their balance, they were powerless against the strength of the current. After hours of struggle, they surrendered to the pull of the river and the waters finally dumped them on a bank in a strange land in a distant country in a barren place. Savage people dwelt in the land, and it was not safe like their home. Cold winds chilled the land. It was not warm like their home. Rugged mountains marked the land. It was not inviting like their home. And though they did not know where they were, of one fact they were sure. 
They were not intended for this place. For a long time, the four young sons lay on the bank, stunned at their fall and not knowing where to turn. And after some time, they gathered courage and they re-entered the waters, hoping to walk upstream. But the current was too strong. They attempted to walk on the river's edge, but the terrain was too steep. They considered climbing the mountains, but the peaks were too high. And besides, they didn't know the way. So finally, they built a fire and sat down. We shouldn't have disobeyed our father, they said. We should have stayed where we were because we're now a long way from home. With the passage of time, the sons learned to survive in the strange land. They found nuts for food and killed animals for skins, but they were determined not to forget their homeland. They were determined not to abandon hope of returning. And each day they set about the task of finding food and shelter. And then each evening they built the fire and they told stories of their father and their older brother and all four sons longed to see them again. Then one night, one brother failed to come to the fire. The others found him the next morning in the valley, and he was building a hut of grass and mud. I've grown tired of our talks, he said. What good does it do to remember? Besides, this land isn't so bad. I've built a great house, and I'm going to settle here. But this isn't home, they objected. No, but if you don't think of the real one, it's kind of like home. Yeah, but what of the father? Well, what of him? He isn't here. He isn't near. Am I going to spend forever waiting on his arrival? I'm making new friends. I'm learning new ways. If he comes, he comes, but I'm not holding my breath. And so the other three left their hut-building brother and walked away. They continued to meet around the fire, speaking of home and dreaming of their return. And some days later, a second brother failed to appear at the campfire. The next morning, his siblings found him on a hillside staring at the hut of his brother. How disgusting, he told them as they approached. Our brother is an utter failure. An insult to our family name. Can you imagine a more despicable deed? Building a hut and forgetting our father. What he's doing is wrong, agreed the youngest. But what we did was wrong as well. We disobeyed. We touched the river. We ignored our father's warnings. Well, we may have made a mistake or two, said the other brother. But compared to the sleaze in the hut, we're saints. Father will dismiss our sin and punish him. Come on, urged his two brothers. Return to the fire with us. No, I think I'm going to sit right here and keep an eye on my brother. Someone needs to keep a record of his wrongs and show them to the father. And so the two returned, leaving one brother building and one brother judging. The remaining two sons stayed near the fire, encouraging each other and speaking of home. And then one morning, the youngest son awoke to find that he was alone too. He searched for his brother and found him near the river stacking rocks. It's no use. The rock-stacking brother explained as he worked, Father won't come for me. I must go to him. I've offended him. I've insulted him. I've failed him. There's only one option. I will build a path back up the river, and I will walk into our Father's presence. Rock upon rock I will stack until I have enough rocks to travel upstream to the castle. And when he sees how hard I've worked and how diligent I've been, he'll have no choice but to open the door and let me in his house. The last brother didn't know what to say. He returned to sit by the fire alone. And one morning, he heard a familiar voice behind him. Father has sent me to bring you home. The youngest brother lifted his eyes to see the face of his oldest brother. You've come for us, he shouted. And for a long time, the two embraced. And the eldest brother said, what of your other brothers? And he said, well, one has made a home here. Another is watching him. 
And the third is building a path up the river. So the firstborn set out to find his siblings. He first went to the thatched hut in the valley. Go away, stranger, screamed the brother through the window. You're not welcome here. But I've come to take you home, explained the older brother. You have not. You've come to take my mansion. That, that's not a mansion, the firstborn said. That's a hut. It's a mansion. It's the finest in the lowlands. I built it with my own hands. Now go away. You can't have my mansion. But don't you remember the house of your father? I have no father. But you were born in a castle in a distant land where the air is warm and the fruit is plentiful. You disobeyed your father and ended up in this strange land. I've come to take you home. The brother peered through the window at the firstborn as if recognizing a face he remembered from a dream. But the pause was brief. For suddenly the savages in the house filled the window as well. Go away, intruder, they demanded. This is not your house. You were right, responded the firstborn son. But neither is it his. The eyes of the two brothers met again, and once more the hut-building brother felt a tug at his heart. But the savages had won his trust. He just wants your mansion, they cried. Send him away. And so he did. Firstborn sought the next brother, and he did not have to walk very far. On the hillside near the hut, within eyesight of the hut, was the fault-finding son. And when he saw firstborn approaching, he shouted, How good it is that you are here to behold the sin of my brother. Are you aware that he turned his back on the castle? Are you aware that he never speaks of home? I knew you would come. I have kept careful account of his deeds, and I want you to punish him. I will applaud your anger. He deserves it. Deal with the sins of my brother. Firstborn spoke softly. We need to deal with your sins first. My sins? Yes, you, you disobeyed the father. The son smirked and slapped at the air. My sins are nothing. There, there is the sinner, he claimed, pointing at the hut. Let me tell you of the savages who stay there. And the firstborn said, I'd rather you tell me about yourself. He said, don't worry about me. I'm not the one who needs help. He's the one who needs help. Let me show you what he's doing wrong. Come, peek in the windows. He never sees me. Let's go together. And the son was at the hut before he ever noticed that the firstborn didn't follow him. Next, the eldest son walked to the river, and there he found the last brother knee-deep in the water stacking rocks. Father has sent me to take you home. The brother looked at, never looked up. I can't talk now. i got to work. Well, Father knows you have fallen, and he will forgive you. He may, the brother interrupted, struggling to keep his balance against the current, but I have to get to the castle first. I have to build a pathway up the river. First, I have to show him that I am worthy. Then I will ask for his mercy. He's already given you his mercy. I will carry you up the river. You will never be able to build a pathway. The river is too long. The task is too great for your hands. Father sent me to carry you home. I am stronger. For the first time, the rock stacking brother looked up. How dare you speak with such irreverence? My father will not simply forgive. I have sinned. I have sinned greatly. And he told us to avoid the river and we disobeyed. I am a great sinner and I need much work. No, my brother, you don't need much work. You need much grace. The distance between you and our father's house is too great. You haven't enough strength to build the road. That is why the father sent me. He wants you to carry me home. Are you saying I can't do it? Are you saying that I'm not strong enough? Look at my work. Look at my rocks. Already I can walk five steps. But you have five million to go. 
The younger brother looked at the firstborn with anger. I know who you are. You're the voice of evil. You're trying to seduce me from my holy work. Get behind me, you serpent. And he hurled a rock at the firstborn that he was about to place in the river. Heretic, screamed the path builder. Leave this land. You can't stop me. I will build this walkway and I will stand before my father and he will have to forgive me. I will win his favor. I will earn his mercy. Firstborn shook his head. Favor won is no favor. Mercy earned is no mercy. I implore you, let me carry you up the river. His response was another rock. So the firstborn turned and left. The youngest brother was waiting near the fire when firstborn returned. The others didn't come? No. One chose to indulge, the other chose to judge, and the third chose to work. None of them chose our father. So they will remain here? The eldest brother nodded slowly. For now. And we will return to the father? Asked the brother. Yes. Will he forgive me? Would he have sent me if he would? And so the younger brother climbed on the back of the firstborn and began the journey home. There's four brothers. All had the same invitation and all had the same opportunity to respond to the grace of the firstborn. The first said no, choosing a grass hut over his father's house. The second said no, preferring to analyze the mistakes of his brother rather than deal with his own mistakes. And the third said no, thinking it wiser to make a good impression rather than an honest confession. The fourth was the only one who said yes and chose grace over guilt. The question is, which of those brothers are you? How do you respond to the firstborn who is sent to rescue us? What, what is our response? Do we choose to say no and continue indulging? Do we choose to say no and continue judging? Do we choose to say no and continue working? Which of, which of them are right, I mean, that's, that's what the parable forces us to think about. Which one of those brothers do I see myself in? And I'll be honest, it's the last one for me. It's that, no, I, I can do it on my own. I'll work. I'll make it happen. I'll, you know, I, I will work hard enough. He will have no choice but to accept me. He will have no choice but to forgive me. Once he sees how much I've done, once he sees how much I've given, once he sees how much I've sacrificed, he'll have no choice but to give me grace. And that's simply not how grace works. The part of the parable that hits me between the eyes is the idea that the one who is working is just as lost as the one who is indulging. The one who is judging is just as lost as the one who is indulging. They're all trying to, to have it their way and not submitting to the Father. And what the Father says is, I will carry you home if you will just let me. Grace has already been given. It is a free gift. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is to say yes to it. it. The work has already been done. You don't have to keep stacking rocks. The work is done. What Jesus did on the cross finished it forever. The work is done. All you have to do is say yes to it. One of the reasons I think Paul writes about this so much in Romans is because he was the rock stackling legalist. And it took him a while to say yes to what God did for him. But when he finally did, 
when he finally did, he was able to put it this way in Romans chapter 5. And I'll close with this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, no one is likely to die for a good person, but some might be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed His great love to us by sending Christ to die for us while we are still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, He will certainly save us from God's judgment. Now listen to this next part. For since we were restored to friendship with God by the death of His Son, while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be delivered from eternal punishment by His life. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God, all because of what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us in making us friends of God. That's grace. We will certainly be saved if we'll simply trust in Jesus. That's grace. May we rest in that this morning.